0: Welcome to the What Bitcoin Did podcast.
1: Hello there from Bedford. How are you all? Welcome to the What Bitcoin Did podcast which is brought to you by The Mighty Kraken, the best place to buy, sell and trade Bitcoin. I'm your host Peter McCormack and today I've got an interview with Mo Gasham, a Syrian Bitcoiner who found himself ended up living in Bedford. But before I talk to you about that, I do have a message from all my amazing show sponsors. And so first up today, let's talk about BlockFi, the future of Bitcoin and financial services. And last week, they just announced an update to their interest accounts. Customers can now send USD wires to the platform to purchase the Gemini dollar GUSD and begin earning up to 8.6% on USD-denominated assets. That is a very, very cool addition to their interest accounts, of which I am a customer of. I do love receiving my Bitcoin interest every month. They also have crypto-backed loans. They've got a mobile app coming, and they've also got their Satsback credit card coming. BlockFi are smashing it. If you are interested in finding out more, please do your own research, then head over to BlockFi.com, which is B-L-O-C-K-F-I.com. And next up, we have the Mighty Mighty Kraken the single best place to buy, sell and trade Bitcoin. The most comprehensive set of trading products for buying Bitcoin. They've got the best customer service for any Bitcoin exchange out there. They have the best security in the business. They have an absolutely badass, beautiful mobile first app. So you can trade Bitcoin wherever you are, whatever you're doing. If you're on lockdown, wherever you're stuck, you can buy Bitcoin with their mobile app. Kraken have got your backs covered with everything Bitcoin. So if you want to find out more, if you want to support Kraken, head over to kraken.com or download the app, which is available for the iPhone and Android. Just search for Kraken Pro, which is K-R-A-K-E-N-P-R-O. Okay, so I'm on lockdown here. Not sure what's going on. With uh, all of you, it's a very strange time right now. Very strange world, quite overwhelming. Struggling to really take this all in because you know I'm 41 and I've never been through anything even close to this in my life. I'm really unsure what this means for the world and where we're going to be in a month, three months a year. Very strange times. I hope everyone is doing okay, though. You all have my love. If anyone is struggling, anyone is overwhelmed, if you want someone to talk to, you can reach out to me. I'm happy to talk to anyone. I'm not sure what I can do to help, but I am, uh, I am here if anyone's got any questions. Anyway, on to today's show. And I'm joined by Mo Gasham. And this is a very funny story. So I was, uh, there's a little pub in Bedford called The Embankment. And every now and again, once a week maybe, I'll go down there with my laptop, grab a coffee, and do some work. And this chap comes up to me and says, uh, Hi, are you Pete McCormack? And I'm like, Yeah. He said, Ah, oh, I listen to your show. I was like, Oh, cool. So we started talking, and he told me he was from Syria, and, you know, he was just a really nice kind of guy. Then a few months later, I get an email from my friend Alex Gladstein at the Human Rights Foundation, who helped me launch defiance. And he said, oh, Pete, you need to talk to this guy, Mo. He's from Syria. He's a Bitcoiner. He's been helping refugees. And I was like, Mo? Is that Mo Gasham? And he was like, yeah. I said, look, I know him. I've met him. He lives in Bedford. It was like, no way. So anyway... On from that, when I headed out to Turkey recently, uh, to the turkey Greece border, Mo helped me with a bunch of the planning. He has uh, friends and contacts out there, which was really great. And I did go up to the Syrian border. And when I got back, I said to Mo, do you know what? I, I don't fully understand the situation in Syria. It's very complicated. And I'd like to know more about the work you're doing with refugees. So uh, are you happy to come on the show? And he said, yeah. So a few days ago, we recorded this. So brilliant. Thanks, Mo. Really appreciate it. I hope you all appreciate it too. I'm uh, really and find it interesting learning a lot more about Bitcoin in various countries. If you've got any questions about the show, you can reach out to me. It is hello at did.com. And as I said, I'm on lockdown now. It's been nearly two weeks. I've I've been really, actually, really fucking sick for a good 10 days of that. I don't know if I have the virus. They won't test me. I have the symptoms, but not all of them. So who knows? But uh, yeah, I've been on lockdown, about to be released from that, which is uh, pretty cool. But in terms of producing content, it's going to be very different over the next few weeks and months i won't be able to travel so it's going to be a lot of remote work but if you've got ideas for shows anything you want to hear about please do reach out to me my email address is hello at whatbitcoindid.com really open to any ideas and suggestions that you want covered okay listen i do hope everyone's doing okay have my love from here over in bedford and have a great weekend and hopefully i will speak to you all soon hello mo
0: hello
1: how are you i'm good thank you how are you, I'm good, thank you. So, this is a funny one because was it about six months ago
0: when we first met? Yeah, maybe three or four months. Three or four months ago, yeah. So, I'm in Bedford, yeah.
1: I'm at the uh embankment where I like to go and get a coffee very, very occasionally, and you came up to me, didn't yes, you? Yes, I did. I was like, Is that him? But you knew I was from Bedford already. Yes, yes, from the podcast. Yeah. yeah. And so you were like, uh, hi, are you Pete? And I was like, yeah. i just say hi. <laughs> and then, what was it, about a month ago, my friend Alex Gladstein from the Human Rights Foundation, he speaks to me and he said, oh, you really need to meet my friend Mo. He's from Syria and he's a Bitcoiner. I was like, I've met a Mo <laughs> from Syria who's a Bitcoiner. I wonder if it's the same one. It turns out it's the same guy. Yeah. So I've been doing this... Series where I'm trying to learn a bit more about different places in the world, and if there's correlation with Bitcoin and the experience, and I like going to the countries. Going to Syria right now might be might be hard. quite difficult. Yeah. Um, so I went to Turkey and we went to the border, and I'm, I feel entirely confident safe crossing into the Turkish-controlled part of Syria. But I don't think I'd be. Well, I don't know. Damascus would I be okay?
0: Damascus would be fine. Be fine. Yeah the problem will be at the Turkish border because it keeps changing who is controlling the Syrian part of it.
1: Right, okay. Well, So I want to learn a lot more about Syria today. We I found out today we we're entering the 10th year of war. Yeah. So if we go back 10 years, where were you?
0: I was in Syria. Yeah? Yeah. Which part? Aleppo. Okay. North. We're very close to the Turkish
1: borders. Okay, so prior to war breaking out, Give me an understanding of the structure of Syria in terms of the different demographics of people in different regions mm-hmm. was it one united nation at that point it was everybody just a Syrian or were there it was the north separate from the south and help me
0: understand it was one country okay you you call it Syria we know that we're part of this country there's no separation even in the back of our minds between different uh, Uh, governments between different cities we do we're quite proud as people from Aleppo so we think we're better than the rest of the country but we're still part of Syria in terms of demographics Aleppo is quite diverse so you can find in terms of religion Muslims Christians we used to have uh, Jews in Aleppo there's uh, like a whole neighborhood for Jews there but they left? I'm not sure. But maybe Charlie is originally from Aleppo. I'm not sure. And uh, in terms of uh, other ethnic groups, we have Arabs, Kurds. There are other small and minor groups. We live all together. You could you could identify some neighborhoods as, as let's say, Christian neighborhood, but you could, for example, there's an area in Aleppo called Syrian where it's normal to find in one building, like, 13 or 15 different groups either religious or different ethnic groups we used to live all together and in terms of uh, in harmony everyone getting on okay yeah yeah it's it was fine for example we i used to work with other groups either in as uh, in business or work together as colleagues in my old company we had armenians christians i had a couple of people atheists uh, r- quite religious you could it's quite a diverse uh, country back then you could say that for example Aleppo is more religious than Damascus or the the coast is less religious but overall it's one country where, where there is a harmony okay and
1: Assad as a leader I, I you know I was aware that uh, I have limited knowledge of the history of yeah. Syria, but I was aware he took over, was it from his father? Yes. And uh, to begin with, he was, was quite popular.
0: The, uh, the son? Yes. The current president? Yes. He wasn't. So oh, he wasn't to begin with? Oh. He was, Supposedly, his bro- older brother was supposed to be the next president, okay. then he died. Okay. And because he died, Bashar, the current president, was in the UK studying, and then he moved back to Syria and started emerging and getting involved with the, with the society and everything around it it was like rushing into getting him ready to become a president but he wasn't that involved it was quite a few years i think his brother died in 1998 or 97 okay. and then his dad
1: died in 2000 oh i must have read something wrong because when i was when i was traveling to turkey i was reading trying to read and understand the history and what what happened with the breakdown of in Syria. And I read that when he first came in, he came in with a lot of trust and people, um, you know, he made promises to for what he would do for the people and what he would deliver. And then there was like a lot of youth unemployment
0: and the youth um, unrest. Okay, I wouldn't say he made promises, but there was a good propaganda or maybe a good PR push that he will change things because he never addressed us as uh-huh. as the public. I don't remember listening to him. Okay. But there there is always at the end of the day you're living in a country where it's quite controlled by the government. They can push messages and people can take that. We we got the message that he's young, he's open, things will become more open as as uh, he he becomes involved. Okay. B- but nothing direct from him. But he did not deliver as a president. It's very difficult to measure. For me personally, no, he did not. For other people, for example, some people say, well, now we have internet. I remember sitting in a cafe to use the internet i to pay in Syria, where, for example, one person's average salary would be $300 and to use internet for two hours out to pay $15. Wow. That's not cheap. No, that's not cheap at all. At all. Okay. And I was in 10th grade, I had to pay $500 to use the internet in, in 1996. My family freaked out, what are you doing?
1: Right, okay. But will take me back to 2010, mm-hmm. 2011. Did the country feel tense? Did it feel like it was mm, on the noth- verge of... No,
0: no, nothing at all. I was, so as I'll tell you from my perspective, mm-hmm. I'm someone who loves to change and try to push for things to become better in my personality I'll, when I move around I'd like, I'd like to to hopefully make a change in 2010 nothing was there was no tension even in 2011 it was things were fine things started when the revolution in Egypt started
1: yeah the arab spring yes yeah and
0: it spoke emotionally to me I felt I wanted, I wanted to support these people. I want to be part of it. It looks like it spoke to things that I never thought of as in my entire life. But I felt the pain of people and I supported it. Then things started to develop in, in Syria, in Dara, then, then Homs. To be honest, in the beginning, I had no doubt that the president will fix it. I was 100% sure. I was like, no way, we're not going to get into... A, a, a bad situation And then what, what changed things for me A day before Ramadan People in Hama Have you heard anything about Hama?
1: I've, uh, I've heard the name It wasn't one of the films That recently came out That won an Oscar nomination About
0: The, the, the girl Yeah yeah. But there is a story about Hama So okay. Hama in 1980 Or 1981 they, st- they tried to do a revolution Against the, the regime and the regime back then bombarded the city and part from Aleppo. Back then, it was the Muslim bro- Brotherhood who tried to do that. And from that moment, history of Syria changed. People became extremely scared. No one talks about politics. You just shut your mouth and live. So Hama had, had a history. And Hama uh, started to do protests in a day before, Few, quite a few weeks before Ramadan, mm-hmm. and then the day before Ramadan, the army went into the street and killed people. That's where when I felt there's that the, things are changing. And this was during the Arab Spring. Arab Spring. So, but what were they protesting for? They wanted change. They wanted the removal of the regime. At the beginning, it was just we wanted. We were supporting what was happening in Egypt. We, we again, we didn't think about, it, at least me, mm-hmm. or what I heard from people. So going to that story, a day before Ramadan, they went into the street. I was praying the first night of Ramadan, and then I heard the protest. I was in the, at the mosque, and then I was like, what do I do now? I joined the protest, I didn't know what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. I joined, I woke then, and then I noticed a friend that I know. How old were you? I was 31. Okay, And then I joined it, and. I felt great that I'm supporting something because we cried. People were, were were killed in the street and back then there was no arms involved in our protest. And then I sent a message to my friend on Facebook saying, do you know that thing we did today? I want to do it again. I didn't know what I was getting myself involved in. So I started joining protest and it's scary as hell. You, the level of of fear is something I never imagined because... Because the suppression is violent, they will turn the guns on you. No, no, there was no guns back then. But we're scared because I can't tell my family. I I lied to my family that I'm going to pray. And then in the time of prayer, I go and join the the protest. But the problem is, when you pray, you face the wall. Uh And the entrance of the mosque behind you, it's the worst thing ever. Because you don't know what's behind you. You might turn around and then there are police next to you. And I remember, for example, in the protest... Christians might come There's, There was an atheist who, who joined the protest It was quite a very uh, Mixed group It was scary It was very scary I, I used to sweat I had to go back home And pray again Because I don't remember What I was saying At the prayer okay. But that was That was really scary We did it for the whole Month of Ramadan At one point I had no doubt That the the city Will, will, will be Part Will all Come together And join the revolution We wanted to do To shut all the shops in order to support uh, the the revolution, people were afraid of doing that because the regime, the the government, basically sent threats. If anyone closes down their business, we're gonna take them to prison.
1: Didn't they ban public gatherings of more than like three people? That's what I read. Part way through the protests, people
0: people couldn't gather. Yeah. Now it's it's when so around that time when I leave the mosque, I would see like 100, 150 armed people around the mosque. There were armed people inside the mosque. So we were, I don't know if you know, but we weren't allowed to gather without any permission. Yeah. To start with. The only place we can gather is is the mosque or the, the church. So by default, we can't gather b- beside these areas because once you gather somewhere, it's, it would be very easy to be noticed. And um, how were these protests? What, what, what kind of numbers of people were out protesting? So the ones, I, the ones I joined in early days, it was like 100, 200 people. Then the, there was a big one that I joined. It was about 400, 400 people. Okay. But all of them, we were unarmed. That, there was like a dress code. You have to come wearing one color, no cell phone, no money. You only take like $20 or so because if you get caught, so you can bribe the policeman who caught you. And make sure that you can run. There was one time some we heard a whistle. When you heard, hear the whistle, that means policeman is nearby. I ran for twenty five minutes. I don't remember the streets I ran into.
1: Right. Okay. Before we get into the next bit, can you explain for me and definitely for people listening because part of the divide here was the sheer. Versus Sunni side, so Assad supporters tend to be Shia, and his opponents tend to be Sunnis.
0: This is all new. That's something we n- we didn't experience in, in Syria. Oh. It all started just after the revolution. Yeah,
1: I so I didn't. It, it was only kind of ten years ago that I was aware there were Sunnis and Shias. Well, when it, the Iraq War broke out, there,
0: there are there are the, these two different groups. But we didn't have this problem. This this segregation. No, no, not yeah. at all.
1: But but what is the difference here? Because this is quite a Conflict across the Muslim world.
0: It's very difficult, yeah. So the Sunnis are the ones who, who support all caliphs after the Prophet, uh-huh. and the Shia who think that Ali, the fourth caliph after the Prophet, who was th- supposed to be the right one, and everyone else is basically uh, either colluded against him or or fought him. And there was a war afterwards between. Ali and one of the prophets, salallahu and wife. It was difficult. For me, when I look at it, I try to, to distance myself because right now, the way I look at it, I don't know what happened in Syria. How do I know what happened 1400 years ago?
1: Yeah, it, so it is quite a dividing point yes. in large, large parts of the Muslim world. But I guess not for all people. Are, are there others who respect different beliefs? Or is it a case that because you believe one thing, and another group believe another thing, that you almost have to disregard everything they say because it's fundamentally false. What well, like, help me understand how fundamental these beliefs are.
0: It seems we reached a point of polarization where, just like what you said, if I'm against you, I will disregard anything you say and anything you believe in. It seems we're, we're at this point now. Before, it wasn't like that. Before there were, at least. I would mingle and see someone who's Shia, I don't believe in that area that they believe in. Beside that, that's fine. For me, they're Muslims. Now, there are people who might consider, if they're Shia, they might consider Sunni non-Muslim or the other way around.
1: So, and, and a lot of the alliances across the Middle East are based on Sunnis and Shias. That's how it developed so, recently. Yeah. It wasn't like that 15 years ago. So Iran is Shia.
0: Iran is Shia.
1: Saudi Arabia is Sunni. It's Sunni, yeah. Iraq is Sunni. <laughs> it's a mix now. It's a mix now, but, yeah. a, but, but historically... Yes, yeah. And
0: it's very difficult. Historically, it started the whole Sunni Shia it started in Iraq. Yeah. So there is a mix since ever. Well, Syria okay. is mainly Sunni, but the government and and the support of Hezbollah is is Shia. Right, okay. Okay, right. I'm getting an
1: an understanding. So as I as I'm aware, there was um, protests across Syria. Yeah. There was a calls for a regime change. They wanted mm-hmm. Assad out. And then the suppression became violent from yeah. the regime. Did you witness the violence?
0: N- no, I. I did not. Okay. I witnessed people getting beaten in the street, but that's not violence. Then well, it is not, not <laughs> but, to our measure. Yeah, you're, you're, you're talking about guns real violence. And tanks yes, and, exactly. Yeah. I didn't witness that, but I noticed that things aren't developing well, and I heard uh, some people saying. Either watch out, or you'll be you'll be sent to prison. Because we know that you started to join this, and I decided just to leave. There's another thing that uh, became difficult to live with, which is electricity became extremely unstable. Mm-hmm. Internet became extremely unstable. Things became unmanageable in terms of day-to-day life. That's D- during right. the war. It, it, there was no war. Oh, when I left, war. I left in December 2011. Okay. And back then, things because the government tried to make internet available only like two or three hours a day, electricity would be available four or five hours a day because they knew that we would use the internet to to communicate and to to arrange for the gathering. That's where I thought I need to leave with with the threats that I received. So I, I left in... Right, December. so
1: they were controlling access to the internet yeah. to control... The communication. Okay, interesting. So you made the decision at that point to yeah. leave. Uh, where did you head to first? Uh, Jordan. You headed to Jordan, okay. But the war essentially started in 2011, 12? 12. 12. Mid
0: 2012, where the revolution got armed involved and then the regime increased the level of, of uh, attack on people. Because in my time... It was like, if you were caught, you will be sent to prison for two months and you will leave. There was no, nothing beyond that. Okay. i know that it's going to be two months. And then six months later, it would be six months. And then people started to come back dead to their family. Right. Like someone would call you your sibling or someone you know is dead. Come and collect them. On the revolution side, who was arming the revolution? It's very difficult to tell, but... I was in one meetings, we were preparing for for a protest. I'm not part of any any political groups. I was part of people who, who were trying to express their opinion. So I heard some people suggesting that we can get armed people to be in the front where they protect us against the militias who might attack. Part of us said, we can't do that. Once we do that, we will lose. But I think such recommendation Either we get armed or we get uh, we get help. Then maybe people from outside, let's say, there might be other other friends or groups who wanted to support the revolution and offered offered the the weapons. But I think it started like that and then it became more organized into arm move.
1: Yeah. So the, there's four main groups that I noticed when I was doing my research. There's obviously Bashar and uh, Syrian forces backed by Russia. Yeah. Um there was the interim government the Syrian opposition or the Free uh, Syrian Army which includes Turkey also support from the USA and what I didn't realize there was a separate group the SDF uh Rojava YPJ that's that's Kurdish. Yeah, that's the Kurdish yes. but the Kurdish groups also were part of the conflict backed also by the United States. So there's is, for, I always thought originally that was two main groups, but actually there was four main groups operating. What is the relationship between the revolution and the Kurds? And also explain the Kurds, because the the Kurdish region region essentially borders three countries, right?
0: Yeah. So the Kurdish situation is unique. And I have to be fair. They they have been treated badly for 30 years by the government and by people. That's very bad to say, and, and it's unfortunate. But the government... Treated them as, as second-class citizens, or maybe third-class citizens, and never there are there were like five hundred thousand without an ID, and then people treated them as like they're not part of us. They're not really part of us. Although you might not you they might not say it clearly, but it was it was clear because in my city there were a lot of Kurds. I worked with a lot of Kurds, and I when we speak, they say you don't treat us fairly. We're not treated fairly by the government and we're not treated fairly by people. And I think when the revolution started, the main groups who were very scared are the Christians and the Kurds. The Christians were like, okay, what happens if the the regime fails? Because we don't know who's going to come next. And the regime keeps that balance between all these different groups. They got scared, and they, they were right to get scared because they didn't know who's the other side. There were so many leaders and so many sides. The Kurds, it was... Now it seems that the government wanted the Kurds to be on their side and the revolution wanted people to be on their side and that where it became it's so difficult and I think that's why they decided to go and get support by the USA because for them there's another problem with it, which is Turkey. Mm-hmm. Turkey hates them. What like, we know that Turkey will not allow a Kurdish country. That's they what we hate know. the
1: Kurds. Yeah.
0: Probably yes. Yeah. I don't know because I haven't, I'm not aware of it, but I know that there is a problem between, there was there was in 1990, Turkey was about to start a war with Syria because one leader that we, we were keeping and training in Syria until we, we had to give it to them. So the Kurds had a problem there because for them, it's a different fight that they need to manage. And I thought one, again, I, I'm not, part of any leadership or Mm -hmm. or group. But I thought we need to approach Kurds and let them know how we're going to deal with them. But we weren't that organized to try to figure things out for for the years to come. And you're from Aleppo. Yeah.
1: Somewhere. somewhere. A lot of people have heard about and seen on the news one of those cities that has just been bombarded. Yeah. And every shot I see is just vast... Uh, complexes of bombed buildings. Now, does the footage tend to only focus on those areas or is it an entire city that has been destroyed?
0: It's not the entire city, but okay. the main areas of the city. So Aleppo is known to be a manufacturing city. Mm-hmm. So we have like 70,000 workshop in Aleppo where four million people, the areas where, there, where the factories are, were all destroyed. We, we had two factories. Both of them were destroyed. We know other people that they the, even the the tab were removed. All the all the tapes, everything was removed. So from that part, which they were is, they destroyed because they were bombed. It was bombed. Then people came and stole the machinery and everything else. So it, okay. it was it was turns. Sometimes the government militias would would will do that, and then the the opposition will do that. But that area was all. Basically flattened, almost the the city center, which is where all the historical areas are, that was a main war scene. People couldn't go there for months, and that was almost destroyed. Okay, which is the main area of Aleppo, where where all the heritage is. The uh, there are other signs who are less less I would say important, maybe newer. It wasn't it wasn't as destroyed, but I could say forty percent of the city is basically. Severely destroyed, maybe 20 to 30 percent destroyed. At one point, when I call someone from Aleppo, they say, We're living in 15 percent of the city, the rest is a war scene. How does it function
1: as a city? If you say the majority of the manufacturing base has been destroyed, I'm aware that um, there has been a tactic by Assad to bomb hospitals and bomb schools. Uh, I think I read today. Only three out of every ten schools remain because they've all been bombed. So how does it function as a city from day to day in terms of the economics of the city? What work are people doing? How are people coping? How are they sourcing food, buying food? Because you're still talking about... How many people still live there? I think now two and a half million. So that's two and a half million people. How does it function as a city?
0: So all factories left or destroyed. So people Mm -hmm. either... Can't do the work anymore, or they already moved to new countries. There's Jordan, Turkey, Egypt are the main parts. A bit, some people went to UAE, but not that much. And you came to Bedford. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And so, uh, in terms of what what I've noticed, there's nothing that you, there's no public uh, or or information that you can gather about that. But what I noticed that people who left started to send money, and then. People would try to manage between savings, between... So we we were known to be people who save a lot. Mm-hmm. And I would say people spent most of their savings. It's normal that, for example, a normal household, if they earn 20,000, they might have 200,000 worth of savings. That was all consumed. I know it from my relatives and people I, I speak to. And there is the support that we they get from outside. Beside... Then all, I was speaking once to people, they said our our ambition in life became so different. So what, what you think is necessary for us, it became unnecessary. What we need is basically to get one shower a week, to be able to wash our, our clothes once a week, and then just to be able to see one another. Everything became so basic that they can live with one-tenth of what they used to live before. My aunt lost like about 40 kilos. Out of that's good on one side, but I'm trying to. When I, when I saw her, I was like, "Wow, she changed quite a lot." There are other people who who don't care about things anymore to the point that people outside Syria lost contact with the ones inside. What what do I say when I talk to you next? Is there infrastructure? Was there still yeah, phone yeah. lines, internet? There there is. Phone line, but the, so the electricity infrastructure was all destroyed. Okay. Now we became just like Beirut, living on the generators. Okay. Because the 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 main lines or were destroyed. Water was destroyed. People, we used to have water being delivered to every house. So how now, how do people get water now? Now they get cars, big big containers, come to the neighborhood, and they fill all the the whatever they can save inside the house. It became very difficult. And is that a commercial service it has been brought in, you have to buy the of water? Course, of course, everything. You have to buy the water, you have to buy the electricity, or uh, a neighborhood all come together and bring a generator to the to the neighborhood. It became a different city. And it's like that right now? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and, and so, but, but
1: but how are people functioning? Is, is there any industry there at all? Any what kind of work do people Basics,
0: do? All, all basics. Factories are still un- unfunctional. Food and maybe uh, entertainment, anything that people have to deal with on day-to-day. Anything sustainable long-term is all destroyed. So it's almost like um, when I went
1: to the Venezuela border, Cucuta, it's it's mainly retail and service. Yes. What can I do for you? Yeah, what exactly. What can you do for me? Exactly. Okay. In terms of governance of Aleppo now, and that's now back under uh, Assad's... It's been always under Assad. I thought that was at one point under the... It was held by the rebels. Not
0: the main infrastructure buildings or services. was There was part of the city, big part of the city, but they never lost control of the government of the city. But it has full control of the city again now.
1: Idlib, I believe, is the only city they don't have control of. Yes, you're right. Okay. So, try and explain to me life prior to the war. Talk to me about the currency. What is the currency of Syria? And talk to me about inflation and the kind of experiences that people might have gone through with money, which kind of turns them off. It
0: yeah. And in two thousand eleven, and ten years prior to that, the one dollar would be around forty-five lira mm-hmm. to fifty lira. So lira is the currency. Yeah. After in two thousand twelve or thirteen, it became a hundred lira, so it was doubled. Then it went up up until two thousand. Nineteen, it reached five hundred lira, and then in the last few weeks of of two thousand nineteen, it reached a thousand a thousand lira. So that's twenty times in in eight years. And
1: do you talk to people about this? The what this means for them? Do yeah. they understand
0: why this is happening? Who the ones inside? Yeah, the, no, they just they just uh, see things ch- prices change on daily basis, and they have to cope with that. They have to. It seems that there's now a war trade that is happening inside Syria where people try to benefit from what's happening. So there's new wealth is being created out of out of what's happening. But people don't know. They know that it's a war and we're just losing on a daily basis. That's where the support from outside is helping, but not. Not as much.
1: And talk to me about your own feelings for Syria right now. You still feel like you're a Syrian, of course. But I don't know who I am. Oh,
0: really? It's very difficult. You don't feel... I but, don't know who I am.
1: But if I asked you, you would tell me you're Syrian. Yes. Yeah? yeah. But if you were to travel, say, to Damascus, would you feel like an outsider? Yeah, of course. And would you have felt like an outsider 10 years ago
0: anyway? 10 years ago, I. so that's interesting. Um, and that, relates maybe somehow to the whole what's happening in currencies and digital currencies and, and Bitcoin. So in 10 years, I felt that I'm starting to relate to the world more than I, I relate to Syrians. And okay. that was because of the internet. I, understand. I felt I'm closer to someone who's maybe in in somewhere in Europe than the person who's sitting next to me in a cafe or my friend. I started to develop this feeling and I felt frustrated that I love the internet, I love what's happening there, but I can't do something around it because I was in the United States between 2001 and three, and then I thought, okay, I can do things in Syria with the whole internet. That was my main reason why I went back, but things weren't as, as smooth as I thought or I imagined. So that I developed that feeling then and I wanted to change. Part of the reason why I left because I wanted to be part of what's happening. So I don't know if you know, for example, in Syria, before I leave, you can't have a phone with a number and data at the same time. You either have a data or a number. So that means... Hold on, what? Yeah. We didn't have a SIM card that can have both. So everything you experienced between th- 2007 and 10, we didn't experience. So you,
1: you had two phones or two yeah, SIM cards?
0: In, in, also, in order to do that, you need to have two phones. And it was difficult to move around back then. iPhone was just released. So we lost a lot about what's happening because of this... Uh, decision that people can't have data on their phone. I wanted to be, I've heard about, I started to hear about things that are developing and moving forward and I don't see it. That's one of the reason I I decided to leave and, and try something outside Syria. But at this time, when when I moved to Jordan and started a company and started to experience everything else now, I don't know if I go back, what do I feel? Do I Do I really want to go there with this circumstances? But I'm not part of where I am right now. How,
1: how would they feel about you? How would people? I'm an outsider. This? You're an outsider. Yeah, because you
0: left, or because you're from the from the north. To be honest, because I'm not. I think because we don't feel the suffering that they feel it. Okay. And I I totally understand it. I have nothing against that yeah. because I know f- friends of mine, and that's something basically I used to feel, to feel blessed whenever I I go into hard times in outside Syria because. There's someone who, who is now living a very bad uh, life. I could have been in, in their shoes right now and whatever I'm facing is fine. But for them, you don't know what you're talking about. It's always, you don't know what you're talking about. You haven't lived. With time, I think it could develop hate, but I think it's only because of distance.
1: Next up, I talk to Mo more about Bitcoin and Syria and how he is teaching refugees how to use Bitcoin. But before that, I've got a message from my amazing sponsors. So let's talk about CoinTracker. They help you track your taxes. They help you do your tax return related to crypto and Bitcoin. And as I've mentioned in the last couple of runs of these ads, I got a bit of negative feedback on this. People are saying to me, what are you doing supporting a tax company? Tax is evil. Stop supporting the man. And you know what? Fair question, but the reality is if you choose not to pay your tax, you do risk facing some kind of enforcement from your government. Look, in the UK, you can end up going to court and face heavy fines. And whilst I don't agree with tax and I don't want to pay it, I don't want to go to court and I don't want to get a massive fine. So look, I choose to pay my tax and I use CoinTracker and it's a very, very easy tool to use. You just load up your wallets, you load up your exchanges, and within like two minutes, it's calculated your tax. You don't have to go through all those endless lines of transactions trying to figure it out. And also listen, it is free for users who have two hundred or fewer transactions in a tax year. And if you do have more than that, well then you can get a 10% discount. You just use the URL cointracker.io forward slash A forward slash WBD. And by the way, I did a very short interview with Chandon, their CEO, based on the feedback. That's gonna come out on Sunday. Just talking a little bit about tax. So that's a bonus. About uh, about a 30 minute show. That'll be out on Sunday. Also, let's talk about SatStreet because they've now officially launched and I'm going to have a promotion running for those today. I'm going to be doing a multi-million Sat giveaway on behalf of them. So SatStreet is the easiest way to send Bitcoin to everyone you know. Not only that, SatStreet gives you many ways to earn Bitcoins. They have brought together all the top referral programs in the industry into one place. So if you're new to Bitcoin and you just want to earn some Bitcoin where well, you can sign up in Sat Street and you can use all these referral links to start building up your Sats balance, which is very cool. Sat Street will also reward every person you invite that earns Bitcoin. So newcomers get to learn about Bitcoin and earn Sats. And at the same time, you get rewarded for helping grow the network. So pretty cool. Really like what these guys are doing. If you want to find out more, head over to satstreet.com, which is S-A-T-S-T-R-E-E-T.com. And lastly, if you've not heard Consensus, I'm afraid it's the latest casualty to the coronavirus. Very sad. I do like going to New York every year for Consensus. It's always a great time to hang out with Bitcoiners, talk about Bitcoin, grab a beer. But yeah, Consensus and Blockchain Week has now been turned to a completely virtual event. So if you purchase a ticket to Consensus 2020, they will be issuing refunds, but they're not going to let this stop the show. They will be running a virtual event. They will be bringing together the community to educate and grow and create meaningful connections. They've got a packed agenda, which will include Bitcoin industry leaders and special guests. So if you are interested in this, you can register for free. Just head over to Consensus2020.com which is consensus 2 0 2 tell me how the fuck you ended up in bedford because <laughs> that's the funniest <laughs> bit for me yeah so because I, no like i've done so much to try and put bedford on the map because nobody's heard of it it's just a shitty little town right i mean i love
0: it here yeah how, how long have you been here three years almost there
1: yeah see it's changed a lot over the last five years it's a very different town from say 10 years ago oh okay i mean we have that beautiful river of course the whole cinema complex and restaurants there that is new but what happened was a lot of people used to live in london and the house prices in london got so high people realized they could sell their flat in london and get a big house here and so there was a big kind of a big group of people migrating back from London to Bedford. So a
0: lot of money came into the town. But how did you end up here? Okay. So when I came here, I left my startup in Jordan, and I started to come here to build a startup to solve payments in the Middle East and North Africa because it doesn't work. You came to England to do that? Yes. I thought digital payments don't work in the Middle East and North Africa. That was late 2016. And then I started to learn about Bitcoin and, and blockchain, with everything that I learned and with me realizing that it's going to be very difficult to build a solution remotely for for the region, I was like, I'll stop. I spoke to my co-founders and I told them, we have to stop and I have to learn a lot. There's something that I don't know about. And I realized I need a lot of time to learn all these things. I felt at this point that I'm behind technically because of maybe me being involved in my previous startup and then I wanted to save money. I knew that I will need long time it's not weeks it's months i looked for a place where i can access london easily so the train from here to london is about 38 minutes which is fine and the rent is half half the price in london and i spent a year and a half learning few technologies that i'm interested in and digital currency i went back to trying to learn all the the fights that people had in from the day of the block size that were where I, when I joined. What is the block size? Why people are fighting about that? Who's BCH? Why? And but I wanted to know because yeah, that's where when you asked me earlier, I felt I'm connected to people through internet, but I felt Bitcoin and digital currencies speak to a pain that I lived with without knowing. So one one thing that made me change a lot of perspectives in my life. We always complained about the the regime and all the the corruption in Syria. But one thing that made me feel that this is nothing comparing to the inflation that we lived with, because my mom always used to say, when I was young, $1 was three lira in her days. And then what we lost in terms of value because we're using the wrong money and the money that hyperinflate, Basically it made my hourly rate in Syria a lot less than anyone else in in another country. I don't know if you know, but if you're a young man in Syria, you need about 40 years to own a house. No, I didn't know that. 40 years. If you, if if you're earning good money. When I knew about that and then when when I started my company I was like, wow, we're living in a different world and the problem Corruption is so tiny comparing to the, the problem that we're living with the with the money. I wanted to understand that's where I didn't know anything about monetary policy, inflation, the game theory. I was like, these are interesting stuff. I want to know more. And to be honest, all the fights in the cryptocurrency space helped me understand where greed come in, where, where you can be patient and try to serve for the long term. When I looked at all this and whenever, that's something very interesting when I went through the Bitcoin learning uh, phase, I hear a, a word that I don't know anything about. I try to look for that word, and then there are ten words behind it that I still need to figure out. For example, the block size. So what's the block size? And then okay, so how do you do the consensus? What is consensus? Mm-hmm. And then the, but it was fascinating. I felt I'm I'm living a dream about knowing things that I never thought of. And the biggest connection I felt with learning this when I was growing up in Syria, I felt. I'm not like, for example, you in the UK. You always have leverage over me because I might log into something and I get kicked out because the IP is in Syria. Microsoft, I can't buy anything Microsoft. Everything was cracked in Syria. Nothing was original. When I had access to Bitcoin, I was like, uh, it's level playing field. Democratizes things. I have the same access that anyone in the world has, even people in the Silicon Valley. I was once explaining some... What I think about Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies to people, I was like, it's like if I give you access to Facebook in the early days and you can see what Mark Zuckerberg is doing. For example, a few weeks ago, I, I attended uh, a session by Andrew Polestra. Mm-hmm. For me, during the session, I was like, this is not real. I'm sitting with one of the most important developers in the in, the, in Bitcoin space, ecosystem, yeah. And I have the access. Easily, I can ask questions. I can listen to them. I can learn from them. That's something I feel. Your your show is what Bitcoin did. I think that's what Bitcoin did. It made everyone have access to this technology, regardless of where you are, what you what you know, what you don't know. You just have access. Just
1: spend time there. Yeah, it's really interesting. So as I travel around to different countries and just try and understand why Bitcoin resonates with people, the, the in, in some ways the most. Uninteresting places are the UK and America because it, it really is just people just speculating, number go up, blah blah. blah But when I talk to somebody in say Argentina or Chile or you know yourself from Syria or someone in Venezuela, it really resonates with them because they talk about the money. They actually talk about what's happened to their money at being inflated away. and that's not something I've really experienced. I mean, I know it happens here in the US, but it's over such a slow time period. Plus, I mean the u s. don't have a problem because everyone compares their currency to the dollar, and every currency seems to fail uh, over time against the dollar the u k actually has lost quite a bit of value against it. When I first yeah. went to the u s it was two dollars five to the pound. It's now like 120 yeah, but still I've not really you don't have that thing from week to week where you suddenly notice your money's worth a lot less. But as I travel around the world, it's because of people's experiences. That, like you just said then about your mother or the fact that it's 40 years to buy a house. or
0: It always resonates with people. Let me tell you something else. And that's something as well is, is fascinating about the whole space. So in the Arab world, you can't grow up naturally. You have to go into channels that are set so you can go through it, through the government, everything. There's nothing you can do beyond what they know. You have to, just like how they want to control knowledge, they want to control wealth, creation. And that that's very difficult. What if you want to do something different? That's why research is very poor in the Arab world. No one wants you to to make research. That's why if you want to study arts and something else, it's not worth it because you can't make money out of it. You have to study or, or earn what I decided for you to do. But while if you decided to do something really crazy in the UK, you might have, a channel something to support you and that's where i found bitcoin fascinating when i knew for example recently the the square team sponsored someone with a nickname a developer on bitcoin with a nickname they they gave him money so they give him her or them money to to live on on this money and work for the bitcoin that's something it's a fairy tale for for fairy tale for me it's not something that i would experience anywhere in syria or for example, when the community gave money to Andreas while he was on the plane traveling from one place to another to appreciate the work, we don't know that. When I knew that basically you can decide something you want to work with and you can earn it, you can, you can escape all the path that someone else drew for you and you can earn a living and you don't need to express or, or, or you don't need to give up so much in order to to do it. That's what, what I found. So
1: it speaks to you in terms of freedom again.
0: Yes. Yeah,
1: interesting. Yeah. So what what kind of adoption uh, is there of Bitcoin in Syria that you're aware of? Are you using it to send money to people at all? Are people accepting it at all? Or is it is it just non-existent?
0: It's very... Limited and very poor, but I'm trying as much to when I hire people to do me work from Syria, I try to pay in Bitcoin. I did in few incidents and and it went fantastically well, but I don't think I'm doing enough, or anyone who's interested in Bitcoin is doing enough. The other day I was thinking, you know, Brian, the 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 master of uh, transcripts in yeah in Brian Bishop yeah. yeah, I was like, why don't they hire someone in Syria to do the transcript because they can, and it would be nothing, and this person would would be over the moon that I'm doing something really important. I think we need to because I can't on my own create it, and I think that's where Bitcoin becomes very interesting to give an opportunity to people, and Brian can do something more important rather than doing transcript so uh, there is adoption there is no now people know about it, but unfortunately. It's on the speculation side of things. Oh. So, in six months ago or no, eight months ago, I started to do workshops. Whenever I go to an area with Syrian people or Arab, Arab around, where I do workshops to explain how Bitcoin works, what what is the technology behind it, how people can use it, and then I cover the the technology overall. But basically, as much as I can to tell in Arabic because there's not much content in Arabic about Bitcoin okay. other than trading related content so that's interesting to know yeah. yeah i did it in three months ago one and i did two workshops one in istanbul and one in uh, in gaziantep near i think you went you went to gaziantep gaziantep the, I the city in the borders yes near yeah, the yeah, borders yeah I, did, yeah. Yeah. yeah I did two workshops one one in istanbul and one there and different uh, age groups the one in istanbul were, was more about Businessmen and the one in in Gaziantep were more students.
1: But these are these are uh, refugees. Uh, refugees. Yeah. Okay. So you're you're teaching refugees about it. A bit similar to like the guy I had out in Venezuela. In where well, yes. he's in Colombia. Yes. He was teaching people about it. Yes. But what is the use case you're teaching them for? Because there's plenty of use cases. Money. Oh, just A- telling that's was, enough. Just better money. Yes. What, because, it, because of the problems with inflation of local No, prices? no, they
0: can't, they can't use money in Turkey. They, Syrians can't open a bank account easily. Ah, oh, so this is more like banking on bank, unbanked. but they can carry no, cash. No. Yeah, they can carry cash, but if they want to buy, send, do things, earn money, that's something they can do. So I've been trying to find a way where people can earn money through a Bitcoin job or whatever. But I think the easiest way to explain money to people from our part of the world... To explain Bitcoin, it's money. It's
1: just you money. don't
0: need to complicate it. We will get it because we don't have that much access to to it, and we are living ex- the inflation anyway. If you look at Lebanon, Syria, we're living inflation, so okay. we don't really care much about about the price inflation of Bitcoin, at least for the, for time being. But okay, money is the best use case. And then there was one student who was who want who was so stubborn. He wanted to find a way to mine. I was like. Mining was good, not as much. And he kept saying, I, I have a room in Syria, I can take few miners. And you know what? I was like, yeah, do it. I thought about it. I shouldn't tell him what's right and wrong. He should go and do it. And he kept contacting me and sending me messages for about three months. He 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 learned about, a lot about private key, public key, and he didn't need much of my help other than give him direction of what how this would work. And these sessions you run, are they only for Syrians or for any so i'm doing it for anyone but i'm contacting right now groups i know which is mainly okay. syrians but i'm I'm trying to do to do it widely and for more arabs basically just before this meeting i had a call with people from the, Z, the zcash foundation to help me do it they were fine talking about bitcoin and zcash so we can talk about it I will, i'll try to reach out to other people so hopefully is that because is that you need funding to do this no no i don't need funding i just need support at the end of the day me alone. Wouldn't be much interested, but okay. interesting. But if I can get someone from here or there, we can we can do a lot more. If more people can support, for example, just like what I said about the transcript. If we can say by the end of it, we can give you a job to do one, two, three. I, I noticed today that there's a Twitter post about translating uh, one of the Bitcoin GitHub, not GitHub applications into languages. Okay. We could we could pay people to do it, and they would spread the word. But how many people do
1: you tend to get in one of your sessions? So
0: in the one, so I think 30 will be good. Okay. What's very interesting, the one I had in Gaziantep, I yep. had 15 first day, 25 the second day. They told their friends to come the second day because it was interesting. that had to, to repeat everything we talked about the first day. And how long does the session work for? Five hours. Five, five, okay, so it's a
1: long session. Yeah. In a classroom? In a,
0: yeah. yeah in, okay. Classroom.
1: And uh, are you doing it for free? Yes. You're doing it for free. So how are you funding this?
0: Uh, whenever I'm traveling to a country, I'll do it. So okay. I'm already covered.
1: Okay. And are you planning to do another one? In yeah, I was
0: I was planning to do one in Amsterdam ah, because okay. I was going to an event there, but the event is canceled.
1: Oh, so you're essentially going around Europe. Exactly. Finding groups of refugees to exactly. teach about Bitcoin. Exactly. And okay. the
0: reason for that, that these refugees need to send money to their relatives. And if their relatives can find a way to keep Bitcoin, they get it
1: hold on so could this be you could go to amsterdam there's maybe some syrian refugees who now have the ability to live there yeah but they'll have relatives who are maybe in turkey or traveling through greece exactly and they need some money and this is the only way you can get the money
0: and they can i just need to convince the sender that it works okay once they do they will tell the the, their relatives on the other side we will send you money this is how you can get it because there is a market In Turkey, there is a market in Beirut. There is a market in Syria. There are many Syrian Facebook groups asking about Bitcoin with a premium. But how do I just convince someone to send it So, what are you running up against in terms of rejection when you've got a group of people? It's only the knowledge. The problem is basically the knowledge. Sitting with people, telling them about how it works, send them. When I did these workshops, I sent every person $5 worth of Bitcoin. Okay. And then when they receive it, we keep sending between one another. They get to have that moment where it's like, oh, wow. Exactly. Yeah. And then during the session, oh, it went up two cents.
1: It went (sighs) down. But, and and are you also having to explain away the
0: volatility
1: side of things.
0: I do, I do, but it's not a big issue.
1: Okay, fine. People understand that. Okay, okay. talk to me about... Okay, One
0: thing here, people are already interested in Bitcoin. I'm not having a hard time convincing people to learn about Bitcoin. Okay, That's something I found very interesting. They just don't know where to go. And because if you're a trader, I can't trust you to teach me. Okay, Because you're into the win. But if someone is, is... Coming and trying to teach you They are they they willing to come The one, the group in, in Istanbul they businessmen Some of them flew from other cities in Turkey Just to learn about Bitcoin Because and I asked them Why did you come? They said we don't want to be left out I don't mm. want to feel like my dad or grandpa were, When computer emerged And became part of everyday life And I don't know anything about it But I'm, I guess what
1: I'm really interested here Especially especially having travelled to Well a couple of things So I travelled to the border of uh, turkey and greece uh two different parts of the border and a couple of things happened one was a group of people explained to me and this this was quite regularly happening that some of the greek uh, border police had been pe- beating people up and stealing, stealing their money yes so ideally if they had some bitcoin exactly. on the phone that's exactly. harder to steal um but also I, I guess you've got people traveling through europe these are refugee refugees i guess this is, a, in some ways, a slightly safer way of traveling with a lot of money. You know, if you had a thousand dollars and you're in a refugee camp, I don't know how dangerous, how risky they are, but it's a lot of money to be carrying. But if it was in a Bitcoin wallet, it's a, it's exactly. a bit safer, right? Exactly. Plus, you can carry that across Europe through all the different countries you exactly. might travel through.
0: I don't know if you heard, in Turkey, the last couple of months, people were kicked out of the country immediately because of the, they moved between different cities. And when they caught them, they were departed on the spot. They didn't have the chance to go and get anything from, from their apartments.
1: Right. What about infrastructure-wise? Because these are people who are going to have mobile phones and mobile apps. They're not really going to be maybe travelling across Europe with a laptop all the time. Uh, they're probably not going to have something. Key management I imagine is going to be a very different scenario. And this is something I've talked to people about. When I went out to El Salvador, I went to uh, Venezuela key management for somebody living in a slum in Venezuela or in a you know a hut in El Salvador is very different from somebody living in New York who can have a safe hidden at the wall with a bilfod or or you know if somebody is in Venezuela and they're living on five dollars a month and for some reason they are somebody who maybe has a couple of dollars of Bitcoin for whatever reason again they're not going to have some hyper secure seed management so how do you how
0: do you talk about key management it's fine these people that if you if you look at people who are mainly from the Middle East we're used to have cash with us in in big amounts we're used to keep it safe and, and hide it it's unlikely that there's a household in the Middle East that doesn't have a good amount of cash okay I didn't have problem this is your money keep it they were like fine I'll just write it down. I'll know. I'll put it when I put where I put everything else. That's when you said that Bitcoin doesn't resonate much with Americans and Britons and people in Europe because you didn't have to go when you were raised. Your money was already in a safe place. We never had that. Right. It, it's us who need to make sure that our money is in our safe place. So for you, if I tell you it's digital, I already have digital payment. It's safe. I already have safe payment. It's fast. I already have. Fast payments, Because you lived it. It's very difficult to convince someone who already has all these features about it. But someone who doesn't, who can't get the money from the bank, might be departed anytime between different countries and can't uh, move it easily. I don't know if you know, in every country, when a transfer comes in or out of a Syrian account, you have to go to the bank and explain why you're receiving this amount or why you're sending this amount. It doesn't have electronically. There's There's a lot of difficulties to to move money around so when you tell me that this is your money you can save it you just get payment and send payment all you need to do is to save this these 12 or 25 words yeah i'll do it right okay so
1: really what you're saying to me here is that bitcoin is a very useful tool for refugees yes
0: for arabs in general oh, For arabs in yeah, general yeah we have issues if you look at the, st- the stability issue so Forget about refugees. Uh-huh. When, I, when I left Syria, I'm not a refugee, but I couldn't get money out of Syria. Okay. What happens now? What do I do? My family, other families, when I when I went... You couldn't just change it to dollars and take it with you? No. No, I left. I, when I left Syria, I didn't know I'm leaving for long. Oh, okay. So I left. And then now I'm outside Syria and the money is inside. I can't move it. Mm-hmm. This is... When you look at it, there's a lot of instability happening in the region. There are many people who are leaving Gulf and going to other countries who, th- who they think it's safer, same in Egypt, in, in Algeria, there's quite a, a, a unsettling situation running around in the Middle East, and people need to find solutions and alternatives.
1: Interesting. So I didn't, th- I didn't cross my mind that this was a, uh, a problem just to, across all of the Middle East, but you're yeah. saying this is, and is this, would you say, an uh, Arabic cultural issue with relation yeah. to money?
0: With the relation to government. We to don't government. trust government, and government control the money. Right. So I, I, I didn't see the, the trust issue in Europe and in the States. You might not like your government, but it's not about that they're going to steal you. We know for a fact they're going to steal us. They're going to steal. Yeah, it's not, it's not something that I need to convince someone. We, it's, a, it's a given.
1: Okay, so your experience across the Middle East of adoption with Bitcoin, it's still relatively low though, right?
0: It's good in the Gulf. It's good in the Gulf. It's really good in the Gulf. It's good in Egypt. Yeah. In the Gulf and Egypt there they both are are good. In, why,
1: why there though?
0: I think Gulf because they're richer and they they're into trading. You there are, there's there are proper stock markets in in the Gulf and they get it. So in terms of trading they can they can get in new form of uh, of uh, trade uh, investment very quickly and I think only because they have they have a good experience trading with the, with the Gulf, Egypt. It's very interesting what's happening there. Technically, they're getting better very quickly as as a country overall. So basically, Jordan was considered at one point the the digital capital of of uh, the Middle East, then Dubai, but now it's it's pretty much Egypt. And if you look, there are a few startups there trying to cover Bitcoin, blockchain. No, nothing significant yet, but there is the knowledge.
1: Right. So if people wanted to help out with this, Mo, I mean, I'm mostly interested in the refugee side of the things because that's something I've been looking at and I'm going to be heading back out to Turkey. And it didn't cross my mind to even think about Bitcoin when I was at the border, actually. Uh, if people wanted to help out and support initiatives
0: that can help refugees, what can they do? I think trying to support any any easy earning stuff that could get someone to work to earn Cryptocurrency, for it's example
1: that's what, what Andreas always says, buy exactly, Bitcoin, earn Exactly,
0: earn it For example, Arabic culture known for poor content we, we don't produce much content in the Arabic region And then one thing I thought of And I did a few tests that worked We can get people to record books in a form of audiobook And by the end of it, they can get money in form of Bitcoin There are many people who are sitting in a small camp I did it with a girl in Turkey using her, her phone I had a software that cleans the audio, and then you get it. You can produce a huge amount of content. And by the end of it, she can just say, I did this, by and earned Bitcoin. That's, I think that's the, one of the best way to help people to do it. And there are people sitting doing nothing. People who, for example, if you look at someone in the left Syria at the age of 45, it's very difficult to start in your life. Mm-hmm. They can do it. Or if uh, I've seen girls in Turkey that they, they don't know what to do. Okay they can they wanted into into doing some journalism or something translating articles for for bitcoin and stuff there there are bitcoin talk is like a mine gold people can can learn a lot about how the conversation went and all these things so in terms of generating content it could work i think pretty well in terms of setting jobs small jobs that could help bitcoin now and give money in in return for that in form of bitcoin okay You didn't answer my uh, other question earlier properly. How did you end up in Bedford? Yeah, because I wanted to save money on the rent. Because I knew... Yeah, but why Bedford? Like, of all the places you could have been... Because it's... I love... I rented an apartment... Right on the on the river. So the view is fantastic. And it's very easy to access London.
1: How did you find it though? Were you uh, just looking on the map? Yeah, yeah. I was looking
0: on the map, searching, and then I searched the bet the best commute to London and Bedford came.
1: It is a great commute to
0: London yeah. because it's thirty five minutes. Yeah, exactly. Night you know, it's not too expensive. No, no, it's really good for me. Very easy, like ten minutes to the station, then another thirty five minutes I'm in St. Pancreas. So, and,
1: so what would you pre- do you prefer Aleppo or Bedford? Aleppo. <laughs> <laughs> so when do I go to Aleppo? Ah, that's a good question. I don't know.
0: Yeah, Hopefully yet. we'll go together.
1: Yeah, well yeah. at some point. Yeah. Well, listen, look, Mo, this has been really super interesting. It's so funny how we got connected and, and yeah. Alex. I think this whole area of refugees and how they can use Bitcoin to take wealth from wherever they're fleeing across Europe to send and receive money, I think super
0: interesting. I don't... I don't. I haven't heard too many people talk about this. I consider all Arabs refugees. Just to, do you? Yeah. Why? We're all refugees. We don't. We we don't have decision on what we can or can't do. To be very honest, because you don't. Have this mainly
1: authoritarian region. Yeah. Not many democracies.
0: Regardless, even if people want or don't want to admit it, we're you all refugees. What? I'm in trying
1: to think if there's an example of a democratic state in. What what is the situation in Lebanon right now? Because they overthrew the. Government.
0: It's a mess. Yeah, but they overthrew the government. Yeah. Will they bring democracy there? Can democracy even work in the Middle East? It can, but it, it, not now. Not, not with the current leaders. We have, we have issues with... with the, they're, very, they're in a different world. They're living in their own world that they think... If you tell them that their country is suffering, they will think that you're just lying and mm. saying lies. They're not, they're not part of us. So one thing that is good about the whole world, that there is rotation... So it, you might end up with someone who lived with people in order to lead. We don't have that. Mm. Our leaders never lived with us, so they don't know what they're talking about. Right. Okay. Interesting. Interesting.
1: I, I mean, I need to know a lot more about uh, the history of the Middle East. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> country to country, the in, in, into religious wars. Uh, somebody's recommended a book for me. I think it was a, a Washington Post or New York Times reporter, and it's from Beirut to Jerusalem. Yeah yeah is that correct it's, yeah I've down actually I think I've downloaded the audio book um, somebody said I think it was it was my camera guy Adrian Bashuk. he said um, you need to read this book From Beirut to Jerusalem yeah. by Thomas L Friedman he said you need to listen to this this will give you a good understanding of the, going the, the complexities of the Middle East and uh, so I'm going to do that well listen Mo stay in touch yeah Every, anything you're doing with supports of refugees uh, I'd like to hear about if uh, anyone can help um, you should let them know how do people follow you again in touch Are you on twitter twitter mainly yeah okay What's your Twitter? Mal Gashim. Mal Gashim. Okay, i'll yeah. share that on the show notes um i'm glad we've got to know each other yes uh, it's good to be your friend and thank you <laughs> i'm gonna be i'm gonna be around for a bit more now i can't travel so usually i'm traveling so uh, any any morning you want a coffee give me a shout yeah and, i will <laughs> uh, we'll go down the embankment and have one okay all cool. the best man thank you okay so what did you make of that one did you enjoy that? Are you enjoying these location-based shows? It's a strange one. i Personally, finding these Bitcoin around the world shows where I'm looking at usage in different countries really interesting. But if you track the downloads, they actually do a lot worse than uh, standard shows. You tend to find like the bigger profile guests have the bigger number of listens. But I find it really interesting. I really want to learn about how Bitcoin has been used in you know, countries such as Syria or how a refugee would use it, how someone in El Salvador would use it. For me, these are use cases outside of speculation. So despite the dropping downloads, I'm going to keep making them. I think they're important, but yeah, it'd be good to have some feedback on that. Let me know what you think, and also most great. I really enjoyed this. It was really great to have him on. He's such a great guy. He's- Really positive, and uh, yeah, just really nice guy. And the work he is doing to help refugees learn about Bitcoin, so they can actually take wealth and money with them safely as they migrate through the world trying to find a, a home. I think it's it's a really good use case. So yeah, keep going, Mo. Keep doing that. And uh, yeah, really enjoyed having him, having him on. And hopefully, I'm going to find out a bit more about how refugees are using bitcoin in the future because it is a subject i'm going to keep covering uh, especially on my other show defiance by the way i do have a first film out if you've not seen it my film based in colombia before i was headed into venezuela that's available on defiance tv and i also have part two of that coming out so if you have any questions you want to reach out to me you know my email address by now surely you do it's hello at didcom and i do pretty much reply to everyone so feel free to get in touch and if you want to support the show I mean, there's so many things you can do. Listening, sharing, checking out these location-based shows, leaving me a review on iTunes. They're all very, very helpful. Anyway, on lockdown here, as I said, I hope everyone's doing okay. These are strange times. But yeah, I hope you're all okay. Have a great weekend, and I hope to see you soon.